Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. As we all know, we're in a presidential election year of 2008, and what could be more important than the interface and the tension between religion and politics? We see it in the news every single day. And can there be a more compelling story as we look at history than the story of Billy Graham, the most dominant religious figure of the last 60 years on the one hand, and every post-war president since Harry Truman on the other, and that relationship and those ongoing conversations now for six decades. Our authors, Nancy Gibbs and Michael Duffy, have both been at Time Magazine since 1985. Nancy started at Time in the international section, then moved to the nation section, is now editor-at-large. Those of you who read Time Magazine, you know that on the very back page they have featured regular columnist, and Nancy is now one of those three, and she's on the back page of Time Magazine every three weeks now. She's written over a hundred cover stories for Time, including the most important stories of the last 20 years, 9-11, Katrina, Oklahoma City, the Clinton impeachment, every presidential campaign since 1996 through 2004. I asked her before the lunch, what's your favorite all-time news story? And she has two daughters, and she said, that's an easy one. I've gotten to interview J.K. Rowling several times and write about Harry Potter. Her co-author is Michael Duffy. Michael grew up in Columbus, Ohio, went to Oberlin College. He has covered the Pentagon and Congress and the White House for Time Magazine, and since, 19, and, and since 2001 has been the assistant managing editor and supervises a team of 20 correspondents who cover politics and the presidency. Many of you have seen Michael on TV. He is a regular on PBS's Washington Week and has appeared on Meet the Press, Face the Nation, and Chris Matthews' Hardball. It's a personal privilege for me to be here today. I grew up reading Time Magazine. And to have two of the top writers with us today to talk about this marvelous book is a great treat. So on behalf of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, please welcome Nancy Gibbs and Michael Duffy to talk about their New York Times bestselling book, The Preacher and the Presidents, Billy Graham in the White House. anything to hook this to. Can you hear me if I use this mic? Excellent. Uh, thank you so much, Talmadge, and, and to all of you who had a hand in bringing us here, and particularly to our wonderful friend and shepherd, Larry Ross. Uh, this is a special anniversary this week for Michael and me, because it was three years ago this week that thanks to um, Larry's good graces, we got to pay a visit to the mountaintop. And I mean that quite literally. 
we got to go see um, a man who I think we would all say is one of the giants of the 20th century. And to spend time with Billy Graham in exploring what we had come to believe was one of the most important and least well understood relationships in our collective national life. It has been true from the days of a country founded by pilgrims that we would never let our politics wander too far from our souls. But we have never, I think, fully understood how our faith and our politics work together. And Michael and I came out of the presidential election four years ago feeling like we especially did not understand um, and that much that was being written and said about the role that religion had played in that election particularly was perhaps misleading and misunderstood. And we realized that as much as we talk about the separation of church and state and what that means, that question didn't interest us very much. It's an institutional question. That's about the delivery systems of religion and of politics. What interested us was something much more personal. And that has to do with the opportunity and the temptation that comes when faith and politics meet, when preachers and presidents meet. It has always been true for as long as pollsters have polled that the American people say they want their president to be a person of faith. This is an odd polling result because it is not at all specific. This is not uh, tribal. This is not Baptists saying that they only want to vote for someone who knows all the words to trust and obey. This is not Presbyterians saying they will only vote for someone who promises never to let the State of the Union run for more than an hour. (laughs) This is a more generic desire for an assurance that the person in the White House Uh, acknowledges some higher authority. It's like it's one more check and balance on the highest office in the land. And so what this made us wonder is, what is it about that job? What does that do to someone's spiritual life? What do presidents need? What do they fear? How on earth would anyone provide pastoral care to someone in that position? And that, of course, is what led us very quickly to Billy Graham. Based, I think, on a fundamental misunderstanding. Our understanding, what we knew, as all of us would have known, um, was that we had always seen Billy Graham there on Inauguration Day delivering an invocation. We saw him in moments of national crisis after Oklahoma City, after September 11th. And I think we imagined that every president, whoever it was, sort of inherited him, along with the resolute desk and the drapes in the (laughs) Oval Office, came with the office. So it was astonishing to us and, and a wonderful kind of skeleton key to all of the questions that interest us most when we discovered not only that he was the only figure in any field in American life, who had been welcomed into every White House for the last 11 presidencies. There are no foreign policy advisors, no fundraisers, no image makers, no wise men who had the kind of access to the Oval Office that Mr. Graham did. But we had still imagined that that had to do with the fact that it is of enormous value to any president to be seen with 
a man who every year would rank as among the most admired in the country and in the world, that he cast a kind of, of glorious light on them that any man in public life would want. What we discovered, and which, what explained so much, was that Mr. Graham's relationships went back often decades before any of these men were anywhere near the White House. Now, how can it be that somebody would know and become friends with the Reagans, the Bushes, the Johnsons, the Nixons, every one of families that would become the first families of the United States back decades before they were anywhere close to that office? This made us very curious. What was it about this man? Why would all of them turn to the same man? And how could these relationships have existed privately and then publicly in all of their dimensions? And so it was that we went three years ago this week to the mountaintop to see for ourselves. Now, Larry could tell you wonderful stories, and I enjoyed reading them over you know, 60 years of research, of what happens when hard-bitten, clear-eyed, bare-knuckled journalists encounter Mr. Graham. It tells you a lot about what happens when bare-knuckled politicians encountered him. I am the uh, wide-eyed and very gullible and trust everyone and everything everyone tells me member of this team. Um, (laughs) Michael is not. And so it was particular fun to me who I I have interviewed politicians with Michael before. I have seen him operate in... Uh, the varsity levels of our sport. And so it was particular fun for me to watch what happened to him when we were ushered into uh, the very small study at the back of the house where Mr. Graham would write his sermons, where he would retreat from the bustle of a household with lots of children and lots of dogs and the extraordinary wife who made it all possible and find his privacy. And that was where we would sit and talk to him and get him to look back on all of these relationships and what they meant and what anyone who might ever presume to follow uh, in his footsteps, not something I think anyone ever would be able to do, but what they might need to know. The first thing that we found is that he creates an extraordinarily safe place. And if you think of what it is to be the president and the need to constantly project an aura of certainty and confidence as though you have no doubts about the wisdom of what you were doing, you realize how rare it was to be able to show doubt, to ask ignorant questions, to reveal uncertainty about a course of action you're going to follow. And it was, it was very clear very quickly that there is a quality of guilelessness and generosity, and an instinct to see the best that Mr. Graham projects, even at this time uh, in, his, in his weakened health, that is extraordinary. It's unlike anything we had ever been in the presence of. As we came to talk to him, and as we did our research, and then as we came to talk to all the living presidents, to the first families, to their advisors, to ask this question, it became clear that it was an extraordinary set of qualities that I think accounts for this most extraordinary of all public relationships. The first one um, was the lesson he took away from what I would argue is the most important presidential encounter he had, and that was his very first one, and it went very badly. And had it not, I would argue there might not have been any others. Um, He went to see Harry Truman in the summer of 1950, another 
good, devout Southern Baptist. And the two had a very cordial visit in the White House. It's a fairly unlikely pairing. Uh, Truman was twice Graham's age at the time. He was weighed down that summer um, by the outbreak of war in the Korean Peninsula that had set the whole country, I think, uh, on edge in the way that it hadn't been since uh, the end of the war. And into his office comes this tall, handsome, beaming young man in a pistachio green suit and Argyle socks who is just full of, of energy and eagerness and a desire to confront Harry Truman about whether he was right with Jesus and whether he was reading the Bible regularly and that they should pray together, talk about his spiritual life. And all of that still probably would have been fine had it not been for the fact that after he left, uh, the press corps, as it will do, descended on Mr. Graham and asked to hear everything that had been said and then asked, oh, well, would you, sh- you prayed together? Could you show us that? And so it was that the next day, the front page of all the papers included a picture of Billy Graham and his colleagues kneeling uh, on the front lawn of the White House, praying for that heathen president in there. <laughs> Mr. Truman didn't like that very much. And banned him from the White House for the rest of his administration. Now, why was that so important? It was important because, as Mr. Graham realized very quickly at the time and told us more than 50 years later, um, I realized I had abru- I'd made a terrible mistake. I had abused the privilege of getting a private audience with the president, and I vowed that if I ever got the chance again, um, that I would never talk about it. And so, uh, in addition to the personal magnetism and, as I said, that, that sense of ease, there was the discretion uh, that he brought to all of these relationships that very quickly each president came to see that they could tell him anything and they would not read about it in the Washington Post the next day. And there are not many people in a, the presidential orbit of whom they could necessarily be that confident. The next president, uh, Eisenhower, another rather unlikely ally, um, had a very different set of reasons for being very strongly attracted again to a man who is now the rising young star of American evangelism. Um, Eisenhower had a very interesting kind of spiritual history of his own. He had been raised in an extremely devout household um, by parents who had come to be Jehovah's Witnesses. That was a little awkward at the time that he was the leader of Western forces in Europe and, and his mother would be going to conventions of Jehovah's Witnesses where an unwillingness to say the Pledge of Allegiance and the ardent pacifism was a defining part of their faith. Uh, he always was enormously respectful of her and her faith, but I think that was one of the reasons that in his adult life he had drifted away from the church. And so he wanted to talk to Billy Graham about everything from... Um, where should I go to church? Because I don't think the American people would like a president who didn't go to church. And by the way, would you like to write speeches for me? Uh, To the latter, Mr. Graham said no, but he was very eager to give him uh, advice about uh, developing, I think, a more mainstream religious identity. And as the years went on and the two men got to know each other, you started to see what became a model for many of the relationships that followed, where Eisenhower would invite Mr. Graham to his farm in Gettysburg, And the two men, just in private, with no cameras and no tape recorders and no one around, could talk about the most basic questions. How do I know if I'm going to go to heaven? Why is there evil in the world? How do you know God's plan? And again and again, with many of the presidents, 
we saw these questions coming back. Virtually every president wanted to talk about how the world was going to end. This was something that Mr. Graham preached about a lot. This was not an abstract question for the first generation of presidents who actually had the power to make that happen. By the time Lyndon Johnson was in office, you have a president weighed down by a war that ate away at him, that weighed on the entire White House and the administration. Lyndon Johnson's daughters told us that when Mr. Graham would come, the whole temperature in the White House would come down. It was like everyone started behaving better, (laughs) treating one another better, Um, that it just completely changed the climate. And there is no president uh, in the 11 that he was friends with that he visited more in the White House during the administration than Lyndon Johnson. And he would come and spend the weekend, and the two men would be on their knees together in prayer in the middle of the night. They would read the Bible together. Um, Now, Lyndon Johnson was also not above enlisting Mr. Graham into helping convince Southern Baptists in Congress that the war on poverty was scripturally sound. This was not ever a purely pastoral relationship, but their relationship with Lyndon Johnson was probably the most pastoral of all of them. And a number of Johnson's advisors said, you know, he, he liked having a preacher around. He was always afraid of dying. He wanted to have a preacher with him at all times if he could. <laughs> and he had enormous respect for someone who was as great in his field uh, as Johnson viewed himself as being in the political field. But with the next president, of course, and then I'm going to turn this over to Michael, we have the hinge in this entire tale. And it's the one that I think is the most resonant for where we find ourselves now. Because by the time uh, Richard Nixon is elected in 1968, by the time Mr. Graham is conducting Sunday morning ceremonies in the White House, which he thought was a wonderful way to send a signal to the American people of of, uh, holiness and devotion in the highest reaches of government, and which the president and many of his men thought was a wonderful way to reward friends and punish enemies and twist arms and raise money. By this time, the relationship had become very complicated. Mr. Graham was one of the most famous people in the world. The president of the United States is one of the most powerful. And It is not as though someone like that can slip in the back door of the White House and be providing private pastoral care without there being a huge public dimension to it. And Billy Graham loved politics. He loved talking about politics. He was very smart about where the country was, about people's hopes and fears. He was an enormous political asset to any politician, as well as a pastoral one. And so at the point that he came to discover, and I think what was certainly the most heartbreaking passage of this extraordinary half-century-long ministry, is he came to discover the nature of the temptations and the dangers sometime if a pastor allows himself to be used for political purposes or is blind to some of the dimensions of political life that someone as generally trusting as he is Uh, that if you are inclined only to see the best in people and therefore at risk of maybe missing some of the story, that you have come into very dangerous territory. And one of the things that was most inspiring to us, I think, about uh, following his ministry over all of these years was his willingness to, to us and all along the way to admit mistakes, to change course, to reassess um, whether he was truly following um, 
God's plan for him. And so it is exactly at the midpoint of this ministry that that kind of reassessment took place. And so, Michael, I let you pick up the story from there. My wide-eyed believe everything she hears colleague. If you believe that, I've got some waterfront property in Lubbock. I'll talk to you about after the... Um, I, th- my part of the story picks up in, in the mid-'70s, which if any of you, or most of you are younger than I am, I can see uh, today, but that was really the time of disco, so I didn't think anything happened, but it turns out to be one of the great spiritual awakening moments of the United States. There are three, the first great awakening in the early, late 17th century, the one that came in the 1820s and 1840s, and it turns out we had one pretty much from about 1970 on through about 1985, a huge boom uh, in religions of all kinds in the United States um, at about the moment that our story picks up. And it, again, sort of bears on where we are as a country politically in this election year. And Billy Graham's role uh, in it is very interesting, uh, and the lessons he took from the first half of his ministry and how he applied it in the second with respect to the White House. Um, when Nixon resigns uh, in 1974, uh, Gerald Ford uh, uh, ascends to the presidency um, and very quickly has to decide whether he's going to pardon his predecessor. And uh, at that moment, uh, he hears from a lot of people saying you ought to do it. A lot of people said, no, maybe you shouldn't. Um, Ford was quite concerned that if he didn't put it past him, he would never get uh, anything accomplished. It's all he was being asked about in his press conferences. It was 20, 25 questions in his first press conference. And he, he went back to his office after that, read the transcript of his press conference over and said, I got it. I've got to do it. Um, and then uh, he talked uh, a week later to Billy Graham on the phone, who was very concerned about Nixon's health. Uh, Mr. Graham urged him to pardon uh, Nixon. He felt that it would be good for Ford to move on. He felt it would be good for uh, Nixon also to get past this. And and Ford, uh, who by this time was going to weekly uh, Bible classes as a congressman, um, very privately, um, uh, pardoned uh, Nixon in on a on a Saturday or maybe it was a Sunday morning even. Um, and his statement is basically about forgiveness and uh, about. Uh, if we have an opportunity in our lives to forgive someone, we should, and we must. Uh, it's a remarkably, um, I don't know, redeeming statement from a president, and it's worth reading sometime if you ever have to find the capacity to forgive something. It's not a, good, not a bad place to start. Um, and I think Mr. Graham had a huge Im- in impact on him. In fact, Ford told us when we talked to him before he died that it was of, of some consequence. It did matter. He's someone who had known Mr. Graham for some time before that. Um, and again, after Nixon, Mr. Graham took a lower profile in his relationships with the president. They weren't so front door. They weren't in public. They weren't as, as, as high profile as they had been. But he was still there, and he still made lots of visits, and they still called him, and they called on him whether they were Democratic or Republican, and the, the things they called on him for in the time that we have all been alive are, are really amazing and varied and, and sometimes desperate. Um, the presidents have needed his help. Just, and I'm going to run through a couple of quick ones. Uh, Jimmy Carter, who became president in 76, of course, was a, you know, teaching kindergarten, uh, Sunday school um, and, and kindergarten classes from the time he was about 18. He hosted a Graham crusade on his own in 1966 in southwest Georgia before he'd ever met Billy Graham. Um, and, uh, and reaches out to Billy Graham when he's, when he's president because he needs help um, convincing the Senate to pass the SALT Treaty. After, uh, I would say, about 1978, 1979, when Mr. Graham began to travel in Eastern Europe, he went over, the re- over there and realized that all of the anti-communism that he had sometimes preached about may have been misplaced, that these were people too. Uh, 
that they needed to hear the word of God. And he came back from one of his trips, and he said, we ought to get rid of all nuclear weapons, not just lower them, get rid of them. This was 1979. And so Carter heard that. Actually, it was Rosalind Carter who heard it and said, we got to get him on our team. And, uh, and they went down and tried to get him to, to do it, and they eventually did meet and talk about it. Uh, Ronald Reagan became president uh, in 1980. This is a person he'd met in 1952. Mr. Graham met him in 1952. And you know, one know where? In Dallas. Great story. Uh, it turns out in the late, I guess, late 40s, early 50s, um, people stopped going to theaters. And in, and in, in some places, I guess in Texas, they started watching television. <laughs> and uh, this worried the theater owners, and it really worried the Texas theater owners, and so they decided to do something about it, and they called up their friends in Hollywood and said, you've got to send us some stars and come down here, and we'll have a meeting with all of our theater owners, and, and we'll, we'll remind people how good it is to go to the movies. And the problem was is not only were people watching television, there were some preachers in Texas who said you probably shouldn't be going to the movies because it's just a den of iniquity anyway. And so uh, the Texas theater owners brought in from California uh, Daryl F. Zanuck, who produced Gone with the Wind, and uh, a somewhat, you know, midlife actor named Ronald Reagan. And they met at a hotel, I don't know which one, uh, and, uh, and, and sort of talked up the movie business. And they brought in Billy Graham also to sort of keep the peace. And that's where Reagan and Graham met, right here in Dallas, 1952. Uh, they were friends for 20, 30 years before he even became president. Uh, and when he gets to the White House, uh, Reagan reaches out to Mr. Graham regularly and, and has him in privately. Very difficult to find out. We, it was the hardest president for us to write about because everything was so secret. And I finally had to call Nancy Reagan's aide and say, look, unless you help us, I'm going to have to leave Reagan out of the book. And that got Nancy's attention. Um, she was on the phone within a week. It was great. Um, but they really had, a, uh, I think they met more privately than anyone else. I don't think they were as close as some of the other presidents. But the, uh, at one point, um, he really, re Mr. Graham really relies on Reagan because he wants to take his ministry overseas. He wants to get into the Soviet Union. The whole U.S. government is against it. And Reagan pulls him aside at one point and says, no, you go. This will be good. And it was part of a larger interest they both shared in the 1980s of breaking down the doors to the Soviet Union, making sure that people could, you know, learn about Christianity because it was, you know, essentially a godless country. Uh, and they worked together quietly, silently. Again, not high profile. Very difficult to find records of. Very much the opposite of the Johnson-Nixon era. But very much a partnership. Um, there's really no relationship quite as interesting to me as the Bush family relationship with, with Billy Graham. Um, uh, the current president's grandmother, Dorothy Walker Bush, um, President 41's mother, invites uh, Mr. Graham to Florida in 1955 to preach to her Bible group in Hobe Sound. So three generations of Bushes uh, had turned to Billy Graham by the time we get to the current president. Um, the President 41, Bush, uh, really had met uh, Mr. Graham probably in the 60s when he was a congressman. Um, they began vacationing together in the late 70s. We think they vacationed together... Um, I'm guessing a half dozen times, maybe more. This is still a classified secret I was not able to get to the bottom of. But I'm, I'd bet the rent that it was closer to a dozen than a half dozen. Um, Acapulco, mostly Kenny Bunkport. Uh, it's a relationship that both sides wanted to not publicize. Again, part of the sort of post-Nixon aspect. It was at a Kenny Bunkport uh, summer that, of course, I think you know the famous story that 
um, Bush's father, current president's father, reached out to Billy and said, would you, would you preach to the kids some night? That's where George W. Bush, then 40 and kind of lost, um, first hears him. Uh, they take the famous walk in the woods, walk on the beach the next day. There's lots of walks in this book. If, <laughs> you've got to have a patience for walks. Uh, uh, but this was a relationship that is very deep and very personal and very human. And I'm not surprised that when President Bush 41 gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award, I want to say, you know, last spring, he was in College Station, uh, President Bush just couldn't get through it. He just couldn't talk about Billy Graham in public. It's just too personal. Imagine, imagine knowing the man who both sat with your mother in her, some of her most difficult moments and her happiest moments. And then help to your son, you know, get back on track. And whether or not you believe every bit of that, it, it doesn't really matter. It, it was, he was present. He was witnessing. He was there. And, and it's, it's, it's moving even to me. And I'm, you know, what did she call me? She, you know, I mean, I find it, I find it powerful. Uh, and I'm not supposed to find things like this powerful. Um, and so I, that relationship, if, if Johnson was the closest pastorally, and Nixon was the closest personally. I don't think there's any question that the Bush family relationship with Mr. Graham is the, is the closest sort of familially and, um, sorry, pastorally, politically, and the, and the Bush family personally. Um, I could talk forever about the Clinton's relationship with the Graham family just because it, it seems to some so unlikely, and yet it is so deep. Um, I'm sure that... Uh, I don't think we can really estimate what it was like for... Uh, a young 13-year-old Bill Clinton to uh, drag his Sunday school teacher up from Hope, Arkansas to Little Rock at the age of 13 so he could hear a man preach who he had been moved to hear because uh, he had vowed to come to Little Rock in the middle of a racial crisis and preach to an integrated audience. And when the White Citizens Council of Little Rock said, you can't, you know, don't come, we don't want you preaching to a mixed audience, Billy Graham said in 1959, I'm not coming unless you tear down the barriers. And they did, and he came. And in the audience that day, he was only there for two nights, was a 13-year-old from Hobe, uh, Arkansas. Um, and I don't know about you, but the first time I went into Ohio Stadium at the age of 13 and saw 80,000 people, that was practically a religious experience for me. So you can imagine what effect it had on little Bill Clinton from, from Hope, seeing 48,000 in War Memorial Stadium and watch a true rock star uh, preach to an integrated audience. And he has said subsequently, long before he was president, that that was the first time he saw faith and work go together. It was not his last crusade, Bill Clinton's. He, uh, I was the 59 Little Rock, then he went to the 71 crusade in Oakland where he was spending the summer with Hillary Rodham, his sweetheart. He hadn't quite convinced her to marry him, and she, he basically forced his way uh, on her summer law internship. said, I'm coming, whether you want me or not. Um, and he took her out to hear Mr. Graham speak at a crusade that year in Oakland. Uh, we asked him, she remembered it, but she couldn't figure out when we talked to her where it was. He remembered that it was Oakland. And I said, why'd you go? You know, and he goes, I wanted her to see Billy. Uh, and then they both invited him to Little Rock in 1989. Again, a relationship that personally, or at least in some way, goes back. Okay, he was elected in 92. You can do the math. You know, 30 years yeah, almost 30 years, even though they wouldn't meet until 89. Um, my favorite story about Clinton comes from Clinton. Uh, we talked to both Hillary and Bill for this. Um, when Mr. Graham gave his last crusade in New York in 2005, uh, he got up on stage and said, you know, I always said to him, to Bill Clinton, uh, you know, you have all the gifts. You could, you, when you stop being president, you could be a, you could be a, a great evangelist. 
um, and let your wife run the country. This obviously caused some problems for, well, everyone on the stage. Uh, um, but Clinton told a great story later when we asked him about it. He goes, well, you know, my grandmother used to say when he was being raised by his grandmother in Hope, you know, you'd make a great evangelist if you weren't such a bad boy. Um, he tells that story on himself, so it's fair enough to tell it. Um, uh, and when we went to see Hillary Clinton, you know, Mr. Graham had told us when we talked to him that he had this relationship with Hillary. One of the things we discovered when we learned about the relationship with the presidents is that he and or Ruth usually knew the first ladies really well. And this, this was true of Hillary, who was a real Methodist uh, in a kind of Wesleyan sense. Um, and he hit it off with her very early on. Um, and we went to see Hillary to talk about this. We thought maybe there was more to the story. And she told us, without much prodding, you know, about a year ago this week, it was the same January 07, that when they had had their difficulties in, in, their, in the Anibus Horribilis of 1998, um, that uh, no one, when the rest of the world, she said, was telling her to dump her husband, he was the loudest and the first to say, you've got to do something harder. You've got to forgive him. And he said it in private to her, and as, as many people will recall, he said it in public on the Today Show, long before many other um, religious figures were thinking about it. Uh, that's one of the theme I just want to put on, on the table before we stop, and that is all through this period, the second half of the ministry, in addition to being lower profile, this is a time when many religious groups were sort of linking arms with politicians, particularly Republican politicians, and becoming more vocal, more open, more outspoken. At a time when Mr. Graham began to take a lower profile, began to back away, and actually began to warn in this period of anyone who would make go down the road he had just been down. He cautioned all sorts of people, but particularly the Jerry Falwells of the world, be careful, this is tricky ground, you'll end up only getting half, you'll only end up talking to half the country and you want the whole thing. So, um, that was also part of the ministry. It's one of the reasons he kept his relationships with the presidents more low-key in that second half. And, of course, we've talked briefly about George W. Bush and the sort of formative impact uh, he had. One more story, and then I'll stop. The Graham relationship with uh, the current president is interesting enough that they met. It helps to have someone like Billy Graham come to your summer house. Um, uh, but uh, one time after uh, George W. Bush had become born again, um, they're living, Ms. Mr. and Mrs. Bush are living in the vice president's house. This is about 19... I'd say 87, and George gets into an argument with Barbara. You know the story, I'm sure. Um, George is convinced the only way to get in heaven is to be born again, and Barbara says, no, that's not the only way. And George says, well, yeah, it is. It's in the Bible. And, and, and Barbara says, no, it's not the only way. And, and he says, yeah, it is. And she goes, let's just get Billy on the phone and find out. <laughs> which is a great, this is what you can do if you can vacation with him, then you can get him on the phone. I wish we had this around my house. Um, Calls him up, uh, which he calls back, and uh, Mr. Graham um, cautions, says, well, you know, technically, uh, George is right, uh, that's what the Bible says, but I would caution anyone from playing God and saying who can get into heaven who, or who hasn't. Um, it, it was a relationship in this family that really was almost like a family pastor's. And I'll leave you one final story that's just a few weeks old. In November, um, after having really not seen George W. Bush for a couple of years, Mr. Graham... Um, after a very difficult summer, which he lost Ruth, um, flew to Washington, um, had lunch with George W. Bush upstairs at the residence, went back to his hotel, was paid a surprise visit by President Bush 41 at the Marriott. And that evening, after a nap, uh, got in a car and crossed the river, went to McLean, and had dinner or paid a call on um, 
Linda Bird, Johnson Robb, and his and her and his her husband Chuck, the former senator. So in one day, at the age of nearly 89, Mr. Graham had a three first family day, which is pretty amazing, and another way of looking at what it was an amazing 60-year ministry. So we'll stop there. If you have questions, you can direct them to me, the hard-bitten one, or the wide-eyed. I get to ask the first question. The book is wonderful in terms of talking about how Ruth Graham keeps Billy on track as he crosses the line toward going a little too political. And so I'd like both of you to comment on on that relationship and, and, and how she served as really his rudder to keep him from crossing the line any more than he did. Um, Of the many enormous blessings in this project for us, one of them was that we got to meet Miss Ruth um, before she passed away, and what an extraordinary figure she was. And, And of course, reading about her, reading things she wrote, meeting her, explained so much about him. Um, She she very much understood in a in a very clear-eyed way, I think that that Billy Graham had extraordinary gifts and quite an extraordinary calling and faced extraordinary temptation. She saw um, from her vantage point what that kind of fame, that kind of celebrity, uh, the enormous challenges of traveling all the time, of of not having the kind of grounding uh, force of your own church and your own congregation, whereas you're, you're preaching to millions of people around the world, but you're not getting to pastor individually and and have your own spiritual life fed by that. And so I think she was enormously important in keeping him anchored, in uh, keeping him deflated. He was the first to say that of the the temptations that he faced, that the risk of pride, I think, was one that really frightened him, that he prayed about a lot, and that she was really good at helping him avoid. Um, But particularly the temptation of politics and getting involved in politics, she always seemed to be there at just the right moment. Very typically, um, in 1964, uh, Lyndon Johnson will be running for re-election. It's the eve of the Democratic Convention. And the Grahams are at the White House for dinner. The timing of this is not accidental. And uh, Lyndon Johnson understands, as all presidents do, that there is nothing more flattering than to consult people about, well, who do you think my vice presidential running mate should be? And so he, um, and he also wants to know what Billy Graham thinks, because he understands that uh, Mr. Graham has a very good sense of political horseflesh. And so he says, who should my running mate be? And Ruth kicks her husband hard under the table. And Johnson sees this. He says, what'd you do that for? And Ruth says, because he shouldn't be answering questions like that. He, is, he should you know, keep his eye on the gospel. And he shouldn't be getting involved in politics. And Lyndon said, you're right. I'm sorry. Lady Bird and Ruth shortly retire to another room. And Lyndon Johnson closes the door and says, now, tell me what you think. <laughs> very typical. Um, But she also, I think, um, was in her own way very much an evangelist as well and had her own very important ministry. I think, you know, the Nixon daughters would say that it was getting to know her and that well-worn Bible that she always had with her and knew so well, um, the model of the life that she lived and this wonderful, joyous, very disciplined uh, very loving aura that she had 
um, was one that had enormous power, I think, over these families, um, just as her husband did. And I think it's, you know, it's easy to imagine her sort of in the background just holding down the fort back there in Montreat, and that, that misses one of the best parts of the story. Yeah, I would only say one real quick, maybe two quick things. Uh, Barbara Bush tells a great story about how um, um, she and Ruth shared, you know, popular, itinerant, distractible, um, uh, globe-trotting husbands. And uh, they were once together and uh, asked, they were asked, uh, uh, did you ever consider a divorce? And Barbara Bush said, divorce? No. Murder? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but I, th I think what Nancy also was hinting at here with, with the Ruth piece of this is that presidents don't have safe places where they can go and let down their hair. Everyone's got an agenda. Everyone wants something. Everyone has, you're worried that they're going to, whoever you see is going to talk to the papers or talk to her friends and stuff gets out. It just leaks. It's just too tempting to say, I saw the president yesterday and he told me. So there's very difficult to find the safe, quiet place. Um, but I think both Mr. Graham and uh, Ms. Ruth were, uh, you know, a lockbox. You could talk to them and it wasn't going to leave the room. And I think that the, both the presidents and the families got that from them. And that was priceless. Yes. Wonderfully interesting. But my question is, I, I want, the one president I didn't hear about, oh, thank you. The one president I didn't hear about was Kennedy, John Kennedy. I'd love to hear any, I, anything you can bring to us about him. Yeah, I, you know, I skipped him for a couple reasons. One is just in the interest of time, but it's a fascinating relationship because, um, and it tells you something very important that I think all the presidents appreciated as well. Uh, it, he's certainly the president with whom Mr. Graham was the least close. Uh, Mr. Graham was very clear that he supported Richard Nixon in the 1960 campaign and was advising him in a way that, that now he, he said was wrong. He was, I mean, he was really in there of sort of, you know, where to spend your TV money and how to do your advertising. I mean, he's, the letters sound like Karl Rove wrote them. They were, you know, and very astute, very smart political advice. But he was, you know, he was very involved in, in Nixon's campaign that year. And, but he wrote to Kennedy and Johnson, both of whom he knew, that summer of 1960 in the heat of this campaign. And he said to them privately, I want you to know that I'm for Nixon, it's not a religious question. This was not a matter of you know, a leading Protestant minister objecting to a Catholic in the White House, as, as many did. Um, so this is not a religious matter, but Richard Nixon is my friend. I think he has the experience um, that the country needs right now, and so I'm supporting him. But if you should win, I want you to know that I will do anything I can to help you in your presidency. And, <coughs> Sure enough, uh, after Kennedy won that election, his father insisted that he invite Mr. Graham down to Palm Beach for a very well-photographed round of golf four days before the inauguration. And after the golf, uh, the two men stood before 300 reporters, and Mr. Graham answered questions and said exactly what Jack Kennedy needed him to say, which was, you know, I think this, the results of this election show that there is much less religious prejudice in this country than people may have thought, that he would be praying for the president as he always did. It was not a matter of party or who um, he was more ideologically attuned with. Uh, Dr. Graham's theology was very much one of obedience, certainly to God, but also to those in authority, and he believed 
that anyone who was elected president, that that was God's will. And I, can, I have you know, every single president, starting with Harry Truman, Mr. Graham writing, saying, I believe it is God's will that you are in this office, and I want you to know that I will be praying for you. And that was as true of Kennedy as it was of any of the others. During the time that you uh, interviewed Mr. Graham, the most incredible thing that he ever did in terms of un-Billy Graham-like was the comment that, unbeknownst to him, was tape recorded by Nixon, where he made the famous incredibly anti-Semitic remark. Did you ask him about that situation and when it was brought into the newspaper that he had said something that outlandish, how he digested that totally uncharacteristic uh, and unbelievable remark? We did, we did ask him about it because we thought it was very important um, both for us to understand and for him to explain. Uh, it certainly is the most, I think, painful and damaging in a very long public life. Um, it was very disappointing to people when those tapes became public in 2002. And he said, you know, I really, I really can't explain it. I don't remember saying it. I don't remember ever feeling that way. I think, in fact, you know, he, his image of himself was very much as having been a, a staunch friend of Israel. Um, and in fact, as I went back and listened to those tapes, uh, it occurred in February of 1972 in the longest meeting he ever had in the Oval Office in the course of um, all of these years. Because usually he wasn't meeting in the Oval Office. They were in the residence, or they were at Camp David, or at you know Kennebunkport, or at you know in the in the private territory and not the more public territory. And it was a meeting that was largely about how Nixon was going to get reelected that year. So it was essentially a place Mr. Graham should not have been, and a conversation he should not have been part of, and it went in in a direction he should not have followed. And I think when it became public, it was, it sort of showed the worst of the temptation of, as he said, or it was one of Nixon's advisors who, who said, you know, it was kind of like a locker room where every, everyone was kind of going along and... Retail the answer that he gave when you asked finally about why you think he did it. He said, I think I just kind of wanted to go along. A totally normal human experience. It's a, it's a tough, it's a question we're asked wherever we go. And I think it's something that he still, you know, feels bad about. Other questions? Yes. Right. Okay. Nixon during the uh, Watergate crisis and Clinton during the impeachment crisis appeared to have a spiritual awakening. A lot of citizens would believe that that was strictly political. Would you like to comment on that? Well, I don't think, I don't, I, I don't know that looking at the record that either of them had a spiritual awakening in the crisis. Uh, uh, they certainly had awakenings. Um, uh, Nixon uh, told some people after he left office that he had been spending more time with uh, the Bible uh, and thinking about faith. It's impossible for us to judge that. Um, uh, and we haven't judged it in the book. Uh, Clinton uh, sought uh, s religious counseling from a, a trio of, you know about that, and I've talked to all of those people. Um, those conversations are real, but I don't, think, I don't think I can really make a judgment about whether he became more. I don't, I, he was someone who um, certainly was capable <coughs> of 
being having listened to him on all kinds of late night Sunday morning, Saturday night and Sunday morning speeches, he's perfectly capable of being quite spiritual. Um, to me, what's interesting about for us was that uh, Mr. Graham was there in both cases to offer forgiveness, sometimes when no one else was. Um, and uh, that was terribly important to those families, I think, uh, and it probably for the country in both cases. Um, a great story in uh, April of 1998, at the height of the Monica mess, it had not yet been resolved, um, Time had a 75th anniversary dinner in New York, and anyone who had ever been on the cover of Time was invited. You can imagine this extraordinary arrangement of great figures from the 20th century, you know, from the astronauts to movie stars to scientists to the, you know. There's Sophia Loren and Mikhail Gorbachev in one corner. It's an amazing dinner. Nancy and I were back at table 379, (laughs) and we could barely, I could barely see straight. Um, At the lead table, in addition to the managing editor, was the president uh, and Joe DiMaggio. Uh, and Joe DiMaggio realized, approaching the test, that he was going to be sitting next to Bill Clinton. Said, "I'm, I'm not sitting next to this man." April 1998. Suddenly, with minutes to go before the dinner begins, we have an empty seat at the head table. It's a problem. Not huge in the scale of things, but in the scale of the dinner, a problem. The editor looked around. Who can I get to sit next to the president? He turns to Billy Graham, and Billy Graham says, "I will sit next to him." It was a huge. Single signal of uh, forgiveness to take that place. When again, at a time when the country was not yet ready to go to forgiveness. So again, I think that's the important story for us. Uh, there's another. There's an important piece to the Nixon story as well that speaks to a larger theme, which is that one of the last times that Mr. Graham and President Nixon were together before the resignation was for the National Prayer Breakfast in February of 1974. Mm-hmm. And eight months before the resignation. And you know, Mr. Graham was a very important figure in the, the, the establishment and the development of the prayer breakfasts, and it was always a chance, um, he felt, for a president particularly to make um, an important kind of statement about <coughs> either their own spiritual life or the spiritual life of the country. And he had drafted some remarks for, as he often did, to suggest to uh, the president to say, and they rode together over to the breakfast in the car. And afterwards, there's this remarkable letter that Mr. Graham writes to President Nixon. And it's as close to a rebuke as anything I found in 50 years of documents and phone calls and letters and memos back and forth. And it, and it basically expresses Mr. Graham's disappointment that, that Nixon was unwilling to um, not to show contrition so much, but to say that during these difficult times that he was finding strength and finding guidance in prayer and in scripture and in turning his, himself over to God. And, and Mr. Graham says, you know, you came so close and a lot of us thought that you were about to go there and then you backed away. You didn't, you didn't, um, didn't say what we hoped you would say. And he proceeds, as he would do, to say, you know, I, I realize that being president of the United States is, you know, an extraordinary role, and, and, but there is, there is no joy, there is no power, there is um, nothing greater than the experience that you have when you fully accept the love of Jesus Christ. And in this letter, he is once again witnessing to a man whose, whose faith he had vouched for by that time for decades. He recognized that there was still work to be done here, 
and he was privately witnessing and trying to bring him home, bring him home. And what's extraordinary about this is that the, the, the criticism that is leveled at Mr. Graham all through these years was that he would not speak truth to power, that he had all of this access to the presence and he would not use it um, to, be, uh, to be a witness, to, be, uh, to offer a prophetic voice. In the 60s, he was criticized for not being more outspoken uh, about civil rights or about the war. By the 80s, he was being criticized for not being more outspoken about abortion or gay rights. Or, I mean, every generation has had, uh, and different sides of the political spectrum have had an agenda that they would love to see him deliver directly into the Oval Office with all of his moral authority and criticized him for pulling his punches. And what I think they misunderstood was that um, Mr. Graham always spoke truth to power. He spoke the truth that he believed mattered which was the gospel truth. And his willingness to really get in the face of all these presidents, starting with Harry Truman, you know, when he says, you know, basically, how's your spiritual life? And Harry Truman says, well, I try to follow, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. And, um, and Mr. Graham says, that's not good enough. You, from all the way through, he, he is pushing them to, uh, to pray more, to read the Bible more, to, to turn themselves over and surrender more. Uh, because that was the truth that he cared the most about. And everything else, if they got that right, would follow from that. And so that <coughs> moment with Nixon, I think, is a classic example of his, his, how he saw this role. Um, and it was a prophetic role in a way that I think... Um, as he defined it. As he defined it, yeah. Right. Just curious, because I'm noting a... Uh, Kind of a theme of forgiveness in, in the comments that he's made and the way that he's uh, pastored these presidents and their families. Uh, I'm curious, was there any insight uh, that he gave for future presidents that are not yet known? Any, anything that he ever said about what he wanted future presidents to know that he won't be there for? Well, I, of course, wasn't smart enough to ask that question. <laughs> yeah. But, Larry, we could go back. Um, uh, yeah, there's going to be a paperback version. Maybe you can kind of slip that in. Right. The large type is coming out next month. Um, the, uh, to me, what did you, no, I would, uh, that was a great question. I think, I think uh, we asked him something much more superficial, which is, what do you think of the current crop of people who are running for president? Um, and uh, and he, had, he follows it closely. He clearly is, you know, he told us uh, before Ruth died that he watches CNN and she watches Fox. It makes for some interesting dinner time. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, but he'd follow, he was, we saw him in January a year ago, and he, he, knew he was following all the, all the candidates on both sides. Uh, Hillary told us a really, she gave us some great quotes, and she said one of the things she said, she goes, you've got to understand the thing about Mr. Graham is that he loves politics. He, he loves the game. He loves who's in, who's out, who's up, who's down. He knows what it takes to be a good politician because he knows how to tell a story and he, and he knows that narratives and stories are just what, what, what make his work important and, and bring it to life. They're what make our work important. And, and he, she said something else that really kind of, the light bulb went off for us uh, again. Um, she said, um, you know, he, Mr. Graham was different from everyone else who ever meets a president because he's one of the few people a president ever meets who's just as, if not more, famous than they are. And so to meet someone like that in the Oval Office, you don't meet many people who are more famous than you are when you're the president, it suddenly is, is like, oh, 
you understand, she said, you understand what a, what, how great it is to be a celebrity, but also what a drag it can be to be famous and a celebrity and all the hassle that goes with it. So again, the safe place that it provided, the, the sort of fellow feeling, the, the common experience was extraordinary uh, for these folks. Um, we also, in consequence of doing this book, met a lot of politicians who did not become president. They outnumber the ones who did, of course. And um, they all had met him somewhere along the way. I mean, I met you know, senators from Ohio and governors from Missouri and people who he'd reached out to and met and found and somehow touched. Um, and, they, and they all had stories about, uh, similar kinds of stories about what they, he had done for them. So he, he, he was someone who was interested in politics, politicians, uh, the burdens they carried, the stories they told. Uh, and that uh, turned out to be a much richer part of our tale than we ever expected going in. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, when we conclude here in a minute, <clears throat> there's books out here, and Nancy and Mike will be happy to sign them. We hope that you'll uh, purchase many copies to make this whole wonderful trip in the midst of this hot political season worthwhile for our esteemed guests. Nancy, I, I thought you were going to tell this story, but to just kind of whet your appetite for this book. Before the 1964 election, and this is in the book, <clears throat> Billy Graham was incredibly popular, maybe the height, and, and so there was this groundswell of support. Shouldn't Billy Graham run for president? And somebody asked Ruth Graham that question, and her response was? She said, well, I don't know if the American people are ready to elect a divorced president. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all so much for coming, and thank you for our wonderful speakers. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.